My one-way commute is an hour and a half every day. I do think in the larger cities that are super expensive that they are going to have to really rethink their model and as a city and as a living environment. You know, we're human beings and we crave human interaction. And so I think that we will find ways to still come together. I'm Shannon Murphy. And I'm Erin Shea. This is Invisible Forces, an original podcast from Jeffries. On this show, we're investigating the unseen influences that drive our spending, our saving, and our global economy. Things like fortification, inclusion, and localization. We're asking, in the next five years, what will we be buying? How will we be living? And today, where will we be living? Today's invisible force is urbanization. Or is it the opposite, de-urbanization? Today, over 55% of the world's population lives in urban centers. And the UN predicts that number will rise to 68% by 2050. Humans have been concentrating in cities since the dawn of time. First, opportunities for work are there. And with increased population density comes the necessary cluster of resources to support that local population. Cultural resources, educational resources, and recreational and medical resources. As these resources attract more people, this creates a snowball effect, and cities develop their own gravitational pull. And now, urban centers are not only markets of their own. They're also the engines that drive economies on a national level. And although urbanization has been a powerful force, COVID has caused a blip in the trend. When the pandemic struck, many of the things that make cities great and livable, the density, the public transit, social activity, bars and restaurants, suddenly felt like liabilities. We conducted a poll of 1,000 city dwellers and tried to gauge their propensity to move in the next 18 months. And if they were to move, where would they go? That's John Matazuski. He works in equity research here at Jefferies. I got a chance to sit down with John and talk about his survey. He told me about half of the respondents said they were thinking about moving. And about 45% of those people indicated a strong desire to get out of the city altogether. I, I don't think it's a matter of kind of moving to a different area of the city. What we're picking up on is a, a more kind of life-altering decision in terms of, you know, more space, more seclusion, a kind of, you know, new beginning, new chapter. John says that right now, it looks like the pandemic is accelerating the trend away from urbanization, at least for the time being. People are redefining where they feel safe living and working. And life outside big city centers can be less expensive, allowing access to housing options some generations thought were out of reach. I think increasingly, with everything going on in the world and all this uncertainty related to COVID-19, I think this definition or perception of luxury, it's increasingly including words like safety, seclusion. And so I think this vision of the American dream is becoming increasingly sought after, especially by generations 
which are kind of under-indexed to home ownership. John's talking about millennials. In general, home ownership rates in this demographic are significantly lower than for their parents or grandparents. So this is something where, you know, we see uh, this kind of pandemic as an accelerant, something that's going to pull forward the timetable for home ownership for different generations, but especially millennials. Many millennials could only afford to rent while living in big cities. But now that there's an uptick in the trend towards de-urbanization, they have a hope of buying a home. But obviously, the ability to flee the city for the country or even the suburbs is a privilege. And if this is a move that's inspired by COVID lockdowns, is it a trend that will continue when the threat of the disease is resolved? In the 1500s, Florentines fled the city during the Black Death, but not permanently. Citizens returned, and new people moved in. The big question now is whether a COVID vaccine will have people hurrying back to city life. At this point, it's hard to say. Storm Duncan, the head of Jeffrey's Global Mobility Group, has also noticed that the appetite for relocation is growing in some cities. We heard from Storm in past episodes and wanted to bring him back to hear more. There's been a significant reshuffling that I've noticed across a lot of the bigger cities that have expensive cost of living. So the exodus from New York and San Francisco of people that with whom we work in the technology space and fellow partners and competitors of ours in the finance space, the exodus has been enormous. But whether or not they return remains to be seen, especially as companies are realizing that they don't necessarily need all of their employees to be physically present in the office. And employees are realizing how much farther their salaries go outside of expensive urban centers like New York or San Francisco. They might even be able to, over time, realize, hey, this person moved to Portland, Oregon, or to Casper, Wyoming, or even Jackson Hole, Wyoming, right? And so I can probably keep them in the job that they have now because it's working for them, it's working for me. So I don't foresee that portion changing for that group of people in those types of cities. But I do think in the larger cities that are super expensive, that they, they are going to have to really rethink their model and as a city and as a living environment. And that's where you're probably going to see the biggest transition is you're going to see people going to cities of 100,000 to half a million and away from cities of a million and greater. COVID has shown many companies that people don't need to come into an office every day to be doing productive work. And this kind of flexibility about where people can live opens up a huge opportunity for employers to be more inclusive in how they recruit team members. Nadia Batchelor is a managing director at Jefferies and the head of the Global Corporate Access Team. She also heads up Jay Noble. That's Jefferies' network of Black and Latinx employees. So I think the pool just increases and increases in a way that bodes well for diversity. I mean, I think so many companies that are headquartered in Manhattan, for example, where the real estate is tremendously expensive, it's out of reach for some people. It's out of reach for me, right? I live in the suburbs of New Jersey, and my one-way commute is an hour and a half every day. And so for someone who maybe doesn't want to do this long commute and can't afford to live in Manhattan 
but would be absolutely amazing investment banker. Well, now it's real for them. Now it's a real opportunity for them. And so I'm personally excited about being able to recruit a bigger pool of candidates and to reach cities and countries that we really haven't been able to reach before just by virtue of us having to be in the office every day. So certain populations have the opportunity to leave expensive, crowded cities. But for others, the drive to urban centers is about more than easy access to the workplace. People still want to live where they have access to restaurants, nightlife, entertainment, and other people. But how can our cities safely accommodate all of these people? especially people who are trying to maintain social distance. Think about the things that you picture when you think about these cities. There's commuting, freeways, subways, all the different ways to get to and from one place or another. COVID has made many people wary of taking public transit, and it's not realistic or desirable for everybody to drive their own car in a densely populated area. So how are we going to get around as our invisible force sorts itself out? According to our mobility expert, Storm Duncan, the answer lies in what he calls micromobility. We actually think micromobility in the form of scooters will pick up substantially because they're a very, very clean form of transit. They're out, you know, you're always in fresh air, which is a, a safe space to be. We're all learning. So we anticipate those picking up. Uh, we do think electric bikes will pick up as a result of this, not from the exercise perspective, which we saw, and the getting outdoors perspective, but just from a actual transit or commute perspective. So the cities that are most dependent on public transit, where there's a downturn in the use of public transit, so like the more dense cities like New York City or London, et cetera, we think will suffer the most as cities from an economic perspective and a transportation perspective because it doesn't take a very big decrease in the amount of public transportation for congestion to occur above ground, and that will have a lot of friction on their economies. So our cities need to change in the short term to accommodate social distancing and in the long term to serve these massive and growing populations. One way they're doing it is by opening up streets for pedestrians and cyclists. And many advocates feel that these streets should stay open permanently after the pandemic to better accommodate micromobility. By embracing infrastructure that supports cycling, cities can avoid the congestion that Storm is warning against. And the Dutch e-bike company Van Moof wants to help cities like New York and San Francisco learn a lesson or two from Amsterdam. Vamove is a direct-to-consumer e-bike manufacturer with the mission to get as much people on bikes in San Francisco, New York, Paris, London and Tokyo as we have in our hometown of Amsterdam. We basically want to get the next billion people on bikes and we do so by producing high-tech, high-quality but still yet affordable e-bikes. That's Taco Carlier, who founded Van Moof with his brother Thies. But funnily enough, his inspiration didn't actually come from Amsterdam. We were on a business trip in New York, and being Dutch, we always rented bikes when we were on, on business trips to explore the city. It's still one of the best ways to explore foreign cities. And riding around in New York, uh, we discovered what a great city it is for cycling, actually. So this is like 14, 15 years ago. I especially love the 
bike lane over Brooklyn Bridge. In my opinion, still the most beautiful bike lane uh, in the world. But even with that beautiful bike lane, there was one thing missing. We didn't see much cyclists, at least not as uh, as much as in our hometown of Amsterdam. And that was kind of the moment that we started thinking, what can we do to change that? They did an online launch for a new e-bike in April. And the response was massive. First, it was total silence, and then everything went crazy. And now it's just one big roller coaster. So the past three months, we sold almost 400% more bikes compared to those same months last year. As for where this demand for bikes and e-bikes is coming from, Taco agrees with Storm that people are craving a safe, socially distanced way to travel. And cars aren't going to cut it for everyone. But there's something else, too. And I believe... Because of COVID and the lockdown, people saw the light. They discovered how much better cities are without cars or with a little bit less cars. They smelled the clean air. They enjoyed the silence. So therefore, I believe people are much more open to alternatives right now. He hopes cities will take advantage of this moment. Taco says when it comes to bikes, it's like Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. It, meaning bike lanes, that is. And he wants to debunk the idea that other cities just don't have the natural affinity for bikes that Amsterdam does. A lot of people think that Amsterdam always has been a a city with a lot of bikes, but it was not true. In the 70s and 80s, also cars had completely overtaken Amsterdam. Uh, But then a group of people stood up and started protesting and demanded uh, more facilities for cycling. And then the municipality of Amsterdam started investing on separate bike lanes. And I think that's the key. That's something every city needs. And so this means that the roads for cars and bike lanes are separated. And if every city that builds them automatically attracts more bikes. So even with some people moving to the suburbs, the reality is our cities are still continuing to grow. One pandemic can't slow down our invisible force of urbanization. We've seen it since the beginning of time. So if we're imagining a future of urban spaces with walkability and bike lanes, what are the actual structures going to look like? Where will we gather? And how are we going to do it safely? That's a really interesting question. There are a lot of examples of ways that pandemics or crises in the past have changed our cities and affected the trend towards urbanization, but not always in the ways we might expect. After 9-11, for example, some engineers were predicting the end of the skyscraper era, which obviously hasn't happened. And today we're seeing headlines pronouncing the death of the office, now that so many companies are working remotely. But is that really going to happen? To dig into how our urban spaces will evolve, let's look at the future of the office. It's a perfect microcosm for how our cities are going to change. I think 9-11 was an interesting moment for design. There was a lot of retrofitting of things to make buildings feel safer. And so I think that will be similar to some degree with this, that we will we will react and we may move the pendulum a little bit further than need be just to be safe and give people confidence. And then slowly we will come back to some sort of center point. That's Cindy Coleman, a director of strategy at Gensler, an architecture and design firm. She doesn't think we're seeing the death of the office in urban centers. But we do need to reimagine how office space will look and be used. And that starts with the concept of density. 
So from an office point of view, this notion of density is, is sort of under fire. Um, what we're looking to uh, think about is that density, again, was about bringing people together socially, kind of uh, using the expression that we use a lot, which creating casual collisions. Casual collisions. Cindy means those serendipitous encounters that you can have with your coworkers or with people that you happen to just work nearby, like an inspiring conversation as you boil water for tea, that kind of thing. And of course, Cindy is talking about the office, but she could be talking about any urban space. We need to rethink with intention how those spaces are getting used. As the trend towards urbanization is changing and some people leave the city for good, Cindy thinks we might see a more hybrid workforce going forward. Some people in the office in the city and others continuing to work remotely. Designers need to think about how to accommodate both groups. We're also, you know, using the term that things are becoming a little bit more fidgetal. It's where it's physical and digital at the same time. And this idea that how can we actually blur the boundaries of those two so that the people on the other side of the, the screen or the camera aren't disadvantaged to those who are present. And so that's really going to be a, a big focus of what's next for workplace design. While a lot of the changes we're going to see in our offices will be retrofits, meaning changes made to workplaces that already exist, what will the next generation of downtown buildings look like? Parkside Realty's CEO, Bob Wislow, was in a unique position to find out, as he and his team were months into development on a new building in Chicago called Fulton East when the pandemic began. We began to do a quick pivot and began to do a tremendous amount of research into what can we do with this building to make it more COVID ready. That quick pivot involved finding the safest, most cutting edge amenities for the building, including some that weren't even in the market yet. We began to look at the things that really are the most, I'll call it, contagious parts of a building. The first one we looked at is elevators. And we discovered that an elevator button, which everybody in the world touches, uh, elevator button is probably the dirtiest part of a building. And we found statistics that show an elevator button actually has 40 times more pathogens and germs on it than a toilet seat. I know, terrible analogy, but that's what we found. So we began to try and research what can be done with elevators. We brainstormed all kinds of ideas. And lastly, in a meeting, my daughter came up with an idea. Could we move the button so you could touch them with your toe uh, instead of your fingers? At that point, Fulton East had already installed state-of-the-art elevators from a company called Mad Elevators. So they mentioned this toe-touch idea to Mad. But when we came to the toe-touch idea, they just started laughing and said, we're going to share something with you that we are not going to announce until the middle of May, but we are in production with a beta test for something we call toe-to-go. And the toe-to-go system are rocker panels that get inserted at the baseboard of the elevator and at the baseboard of the hallway outside the elevator, there'd be an up and down rocker panel that you merely step on with your foot. And in fact, that system, as we're talking, the oldest elevator company is installing this in our elevators and retrofitting our elevators to have this wonderful toe-to-go system. So from Bob and Cindy's perspectives, we aren't seeing the death of the office. 
but a total reimagining of how and where we work and gather, and why. Urban centers and urban buildings need to change right now, and these changes will be key in determining whether the exodus from large cities is a blip, or whether it will become a significant influence on how and where we work and live. But if we look at the office as a microcosm of our cities, the future of our urban centers looks bright. Yes, it's about smart design, innovative tech, and taking people's feelings of safety into consideration every step of the way. As Cindy said, we're in the middle of a pendulum swing. And while the office is evolving, our cities are too. You know, we're human beings and we crave human interaction. And so I think that we will find ways to still come together. Urban settings will still be really important places to live and work because of the convenience and the access to one another and all the great resources that are around us. And so I don't think that will go away. Our urban centers are somewhat in flux right now. But even though they're facing very particular challenges due to the global pandemic, cities still have an enormous gravitational pull. According to the experts we heard from today, some people will leave, but even more will continue to collect in urban hubs. And right now, we have the opportunity to make our cities more walkable, bikeable, and livable. Cities are the engines of our national economies. And when they change, our businesses change along with them. We're poised to see a massive upheaval and living through something like COVID has only inspired designers and engineers to innovate and build healthier and more livable urban environments to house the two-thirds of us who will be living in them in the next 30 years. I'm Shannon Murphy. I'm Erin Shea. You've been listening to Invisible Forces, an original podcast from Jeffries. Next time, shopping with your conscience. Hear why and how conscious consumption is influencing what we buy. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast app is to make sure you don't miss it. Important information and additional disclaimers are available at jeffries.com. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Jeffries entity to the audience. It's not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or investment. This podcast is being provided strictly for informational purposes only. Any opinion or estimates constitute our best judgment as of the date of the podcast and are subject to change without notice. The information upon which this podcast is based was obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but has not been independently verified and should not be relied upon as an accurate representation of future events. No responsibility is accepted and no representation, undertaking, or warranty is made or given, in either case expressly or impliedly, by Jeffries as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of the information contained herein, or as to the reasonableness of any assumptions on which any of the same is based. Any views or opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individuals identified. Accordingly, neither Jeffries nor any of its officers, directors, employees, or representatives will be liable for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person resulting from the use of the information contained herein, or for any opinions expressed by any such person, or any errors, omissions, or misstatements made by any of them.
Jeffries is not an advisor as to legal, tax, accounting, or regulatory matters in any jurisdiction and is not providing advice related to such matters. Listeners of this podcast should take their own independent advice with respect to matters discussed.